0: Brother Wendell, kid, with us this evening. Two and a half years since COVID began, he and Miss Shirley might have been here once or twice, and that's very prudent on their part for their health's sake. Brother Wendell, it's always good to see you here. Please give Miss Shirley our love, and we pray for you and your family quite often, so it's good to see you here. Um, do pray for Brother Doug. He called me on Thursday to let me know uh, that he had COVID and was not. Feeling all that bad on Thursday, but clearly has taken a turn for the do be in prayer for him uh, as well. I wanted to say a welcome. I usually don't do this, but I thought I should. I will probably embarrass Chung and Joy, but uh, we've not. I don't know. A lot of the church family's been able to meet them yet. They're here with us. They have moved here from Iowa City. Uh, did any of our teens? I think they've all graduated. That went on that trip to Iowa City. Were any of our oldest teens? On the trip up to Cross Point Baptist Church in Iowa City about six years ago. Edward went, but other than <laughs> Edward. Um, the Kim family has moved down from Iowa City here to Lexington, and uh, it is a great joy. There, Mike Barr, Pastor Mike Barr, a friend of mine from ages, ages ago, uh, it was their pastor yeah. up there. And it is good to have them here. And on purpose, I wrote everybody's name down Hannah jacob and jonathan and gideon and hope did i get everybody right isaac, not jacob. isaac. Oh, <laughs> oh i was close i needed his father <laughs> <laughs> sorry Joy. Uh, it is good to have you all here with us uh, it is i hope you get to know them as well um had a tough move down didn't it was it was, uh, it was drove their truck themselves, had movers move them on either end, and had to have a service truck come and fix their truck on the way down here, and so they spent an overnight at a rest stop, Uh, and so So it's good that they are here, I hope you make them feel welcome as well. Well take your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4, we will look this evening again at Christian Liberty. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll jump into the preaching of the message this evening. In Galatians chapter number four, the Bible says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differ not, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, redeemed them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Father, help us this evening as we look at this truth of our liberty. We are the sons of God. That did not come by the law, it came only by grace. I pray, Lord, as we look into the word of God and look at the truths found in the word of God, I pray that you'll help us understand them. Pray that we would use them in our daily life. Father, bless in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first three chapters of Galatians are tedious. Just in case the last two weeks you thought, man, he's really doing a good job preaching against those Judaizers. I I wanted to ask this evening, is anyone in here a Judaizer? (laughs) Now you think I'm asking a trick question. I'm asking a legitimate question. Does anybody want to go back and live by the law of Moses? Anyone? Alright, so most of us in the first three chapters of Galatians often will say, well look, it dealt with infighting in the church, it dealt with a little disagreement between Peter and Paul, but what do those first three chapters have to do with us? And the answer is, they have everything to do with what we're going to talk about going forward. They're the foundation. In other words, we understand the context of the letter because of the audience and because of the people that are involved in those first three chapters of this letter. If we're not careful, we can lose sight of the meaning as Paul wades through the legalistic minutiae. And I realize that some of those early church fights are not our fights today, but we've got our own. We've got our own issues that we must overcome and must deal with. These were very real issues in the church, and the principles of Galatians chapters 1 through 3 are very important for us to know how we interact with one another— And what truth we hold on to. Rituals, rites, and rules that are found in organized religion have no place in our salvation. They have no place in our sanctification. Having established that in chapter 3, Paul then moves to argue that the law itself is not bad and is our schoolmaster. In other words, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The law now serves rather than a schoolmaster as a signpost for us as to what is right and wrong in our life. The law stands, if you will, as the explanation of the true separation between God and fallen man. So we noted in chapters one and two the personal liberty that we have. I think we might have a slide for that back here, Cody. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I did Sorry, I cheated him on that. Then we looked last week at the principled liberty through the seed of faith. This week, we're going to look at the principle of liberty that we have as the sons of God. Here's the way you can look at chapters 3 and 4 together. The seed of faith in chapter 3 is what informs our liberty. Why we're free. We're free because it's through faith. It's by grace through faith. In chapter 4, it's not about the informing of our liberty. It's that we, as part of the family, are to be conformed through that liberty. I have the freedom to choose to do what's right because I'm now a son of God. I'm no longer a son of the devil who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, It is as sons of God that we come to chapter 4 this evening. The relationship that we have is in Christ. And in that relationship, we are heirs with the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's pretty impressive. Amen. Paul begins to unpack our sonship by addressing first tonight the role of adoption. That's what we read in the beginning. <clears throat> the principled liberty that we have as the sons of God comes because we are adopted. None of us is actually a son of God. We are sons and daughters of Adam. And because Adam ceded control of this world, Jesus in John eight forty four says that we are sons and daughters, if you will, of the devil. Adoption, by the way, is a wonderful choice. If it's done properly, even in our day today, it allows one who desperately needs love and protection, belonging in a family, to be brought into a relationship with those who actually want them. That's what adoption is, and that's what it means. The end of verse number five, it says, we receive the adoption of sons. What a picture that is spiritually the devil is the father of all sinful humanity he abuses and uses them for his own wicked ends to defy God and try to destroy his special creation but in Christ in the grace of Jesus Christ that comes in salvation we are adopted as heirs and we'll look at that more in our second subpoint here by the way that comes with all the privileges that we can expect as heirs as well we find in the role of an option in these first five verses an instructive reality for us. The instruction on this new reality is where we find the rich truth for us this evening. Scott, I'm going to ask if you can't. Can you turn these down? I literally feel like I'm standing in a shell. We got a new microphone a couple weeks ago, and I feel like I'm yelling at myself. Am I yelling at you? Do I, does it sound like I'm yelling? Okay, good. I'm just yelling at me. It's like I'm at home. All right. Some of you will get that. Okay. All right, back to the preaching. Here. The instruction, though, gives us good and rich truth. In verses 1 through 3, we find the instructive reality to the new Christian and his learning. What is it we're to learn? Well, look at what Paul says. It's wonderful. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differing, differeth nothing from a servant. Though he be Lord of all. In other words, we have the right as the child. We could be a child king. We have the right because of the heirship. But we do not have the knowledge to be the right kind of king. Well, there's a wonderful picture in the Old Testament of Josiah and another of Hezekiah where they come, become kings at such young ages. And they rule the the nation. But it's very interesting in both of those young kings, they go and they find Priests and prophets who will help them to understand how they're supposed to rule. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differeth nothing from a servant. We are children maturing in this life of liberty. Jesus, by the way, laid this truth out. If you take your Bibles, I'm going to make you turn over to it tonight. Look over in John chapter number 15. John chapter number 15, hold your finger in Galatians 4, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter, so of course we'll be back. But in John chapter number 15, Jesus does a, a wonderful, wonderful job of laying out for us what this really means, this new Christian learning. This idea of the child and the servant not being that different. The child doesn't even know in some instances how he's supposed to obey This is why that seed of faith from chapter 3 is so important for us to understand how we are the sons of God. The law is not gone. The schoolmastering of it, the signposting of it, the direction and guidance of it is still there even in our young Christian life. It helps us know right from wrong. There's instructive learning that as new Christians we must do. Look in verse number 10 of John 15. Jesus is speaking, if ye keep my commandments ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. By the way, that's a wonderful truth for another message. Jesus' joy is always there and abounding. And if you just get a taste of the joy of Jesus, your joy will be full is what he says. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Notice verse 15. We find a transition in relationship. It's exactly the same idea that Paul is talking about. In his reference, we're becoming the sons of God. But here, Jesus says, not only do we become heirs and sons, but in fellowship we become friends with him. In verse 15, henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father, I have made known unto you. What a truth. What a truth. You and I as newborn babes, and some of you are very old and mature Christians now, and that's a wonderful thing. But as all of us came to faith in Jesus Christ and that grace of God became a reality in our life. The liberty that was ours was not even known at that point. The freedom and the joy, the contentment, the no longer being oppressed by the devil and by the lies and the wickedness of this world, the bondage of sin, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 6, all of those things were cast off from us. We were truly free and had liberty. And what he's saying is, as a son of God, you and I, even in our immature growing state, Even when we're just newborn babes, we must embrace that liberty, but not take advantage of that liberty. In verse number two, he says, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. In other words, only that father knows when that son, that daughter, that heir of his is able and ready to take on the bigger and better things in their life. The instructive role of adoption goes from our learning to verses 4 and 5, God loving us. How much does God love you? What's the old picture that we've always seen? There's two hands with nail pierced, and they're stretched out like this. He loves us this much. And the answer is God loves us with an agape, I would say an immeasurable love. God, in his time, by his doing, accomplished his plan of redemption all because he loves us. The role of our adoption is instructive. It's instructive for new Christians in their learning and living, but it's instructive also in God's love for us. But letter B, we find in verses 6 and 7 as we continue in our reading this evening, there's an intimate relationship. There's an intimate relationship that becomes ours. It's not just an instructive new reality. We are sons. We are daughters. We are heirs of God. But there is actually a deep and intimate relationship. Verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 4 are some of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. If they're not underlined in your Bible, they should be. If there's not a star next to them in your Bible, they should be. They are equal with the same passage or an equivalent passage in Romans chapter number 8. Where it talks about we can come intimately to God. We can come as if he is just our papa, our daddy. Look what it says in verse 6. And because ye are sons, here is the result. Here's the intimate relationship that we have. Here is the liberty and freedom. Listen, friend, before salvation, you could not come to God this way. But you can now. That is some pretty good Christian liberty. And by the way, it's principled liberty that you can build your life upon. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying what? Abba. Father. We've heard said, preached, and discussed many times if you've been here any length of time this passage. I think Edward does the best job of explaining it. He says it in his perfect South African. It means daddy. (laughs) That's my South African for daddy, right? (laughs) Sounds a little bit that's what it means. You know, there's times when my boys come to me, and they will say, Daddy. <laughs> That's not the implication of this word. It's not like, Dad. The other day, Drew was trying to angle. I don't want to embarrass him. He was angling for something of mine. Is that safe, buddy? Okay, good. I'll just <laughs> keep it. it. He was angling. When we were at Dad Dude and Donuts, he was angling for something of mine. And he was putting 50 bucks on the table, and it was, Daddy, can I have... Or do this, and he was putting the money on the table. And I thought, man, I'm getting paid for being a dad. This is great, but that's not the sense of what this word means. This daddy is kind of like when the Lydia goes up to Blake, Daddy. The kind of smile, cute, and you can't say no to it, right, Liam? He can't. He's an older brother. That's what this word means. It's very intimate. The Spirit of God comes and indwells you not to be your guilt complex. The Spirit of God comes into your life not to be the reminder of all the awful things you've done and how far short you've fallen. The Spirit of God comes into your life as the Son of God, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father, help me! I want to be more like you. I want to succeed. Amen. In verse 6, the intimate relationship is through the Spirit's presence. I think I put most of these in your notes underneath each of these main points. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us at the moment of salvation. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him. How do we know him? Jesus goes on, For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Paul goes on to tell us this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. But if, that word if there is the word since, it means because this has happened, but since the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Jesus Dwelt among us full of grace and truth, we're told. Here's the reality that today, the Holy Spirit dwells not with us, but within us, revealing grace and truth. Boy, that is liberating. Pastor, I don't know what to do. I don't know what is right. Then get in the Word of God and get with the Spirit of God, and you very quickly will know the right choices to make. I thought you were going to say you would tell me what to do. (laughs) I can't tell you what to do. I'm having the same battle in life as you are. I can maybe point you to passages of Scripture that give insight, but it's the Spirit of God through the Word of God that leads you to walk with God. We're going to find that out when we get to chapter 5, when we start looking at practical liberty. But we have to have some principle here. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Essentially, he's saying... You have the relationship of great intimacy to walk into the presence of the Almighty and say, Dad, I need something. Amen. Dad, I need your help. Amen. Verse 7, wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You cannot get more intimate than God himself in dwelling verse number 7, it's not just an intimate relationship to the Spirit's presence, but in the Savior's purpose. The relationship is purposeful because of Christ's coming to this earth. Jesus' love cannot be truly conveyed into words, friends. We can't quantify or qualify in our human tongue what it means that God loves us. Because it's beyond what we even understand. Paul essentially says, if you are a son, you are also an heir. This is an if-then phrasing, and it means, since you're a son, then you should behave like this. Since you're a son, this is the relationship that you have. Adoption principles are liberty. But when we get to verse number 8, an interesting thing happens in the book of Galatians. And this is why this is still in my mind under principled liberty. Because there is a departure. There's a prodigal son moment, if you will, beginning in verse number 8. And we find Paul points out the regression into arrogance. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Paul uses the word, howbeit, in verse number 8. Howbeit, then, when ye knew not God, you did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now... After that you've known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, or the weak and powerless basics of faith, whereinto ye desire again to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You've not injured me at all. Paul is talking about their reaction to him. And the way that they're now treating him because of what these Judaizers are getting them to believe. Verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel or messenger of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He's talking about when he was there in their presence. They would have said, Paul, if we could help you with your vision. Seems like he had a problem with his sight, problem with his eyes. Literally, it seemed like a grotesque problem, a repugnant problem with his eyes, a disfigurement perhaps. He said, you literally were willing to pull your own eyeballs out and give them to me if that was a possible thing. I mean, you want to talk about people that loved him. It's commendable. He says in verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy? How quickly we can be changed. Because I tell you the truth, they, speaking of the Judaizers, zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. In other words, they don't want you and your grace around them. They keep to them own selves, And when they come in, they Judaize you and then they go back out on their own. That's what Paul is saying there. Because they don't want to be affected by your liberty, that's a good lesson, isn't it? Yeah. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And, only, and not only when I am present with you. Here is the point. Children make mistakes. That's what this passage, verses 8 through 18, are talking about. They regress back into their old thinking. And so they have not lost their sonship. They have not lost their heirship. They have not lost their salvation. But Paul is saying to them, look, you have regressed backwards because of your own arrogance. You didn't earn any of this. You can't keep any of this. Liberty and grace come by Jesus Christ alone. So, yes, children make mistakes. By the way, sometimes those children make mistakes purposely against their parents. what paul is warning them of with a hint of fatherly love here and chastening is to make sure they aren't engaged in that pattern of behavior It's it's the same by the way for the sons of god paul says that their regression into arrogance began letter a when their flesh became manifest yeah when their flesh became manifest these galatians were going back to the beggarly mannerisms Of class and separation that the law had established, or maybe I should say more clearly, the rabbinical order had established by using the law. They were dividing themselves over who was observing the law best, according to verse 10. He says, you are observing days and months and times and years. The beggarly elements in verse 9 speak to the basic observances of the law. These observances of the law allow them to feel good about what they did for God. And Paul says, you were better off when you just operated by faith. In verse 11 and 12, I can understand those verses. As a pastor, I have watched mentors, men of God, and friends of mine who have pastored at churches for many years. And when their time there finishes, and that church goes off in a different direction... They have said, I've heard them say to me, I hope and pray I've not wasted my time in that effort. Now you might say, well, I'm holier than that guy. I wouldn't say it. Listen, spend your whole life trying to help people. And when you're done, if those people as a body turn away from the truth you've taught for 15, 20, 30, 50 years, it hurts. Yeah. Amen. Paul is just showing us he's human in verses 11 and 12. I'm afraid of you. I mean, like, they're hiding in a closet and going to get you, Paul? No, he's saying, I'm afraid of what you might do in your decision-making because you're listening to these false teachers. I worry for you, he said. Paul's ministry, he says in verse 13, was weak in the flesh. By the way, that's the key to success as a Christian. Be weak in the flesh. Yeah. I often wonder if that's not why Christians are overwhelmed many times with life circumstances and health problems and all kinds of issues because God is making sure we don't get too proud in our own flesh. Now, I don't think every problem that we face is for that purpose, but I do wonder sometimes. Paul's ministry was weak in the flesh. In fact, his weakness was a real trial for him according to verse number 14. Yet by faith, these individuals had received him as a true messenger of God, Paul says, Their flesh was coming out uh, in their practices here. What an interesting thought this is. Their practices were showing their flesh, and you're saying, yeah, but they were just going back and obeying the law. How, how is their flesh coming out? How is that possible? And the answer is it's pretty clear. For the Jews, and, and remember, these Galatians, remember the first week we talked about in Galatia, the region of the Gauls, the northern area were the European tribes, but the southern area were generally Roman. And generally, Jews who had been uh, settling there during the Diaspora. So, Paul, in his preaching in Derby and Lystra and Iconium, cities of southern Galatia, as he's traveling around there, those Jews get saved, and the Jews wanted to fall back into their flesh by practicing the law. They rested in and relished their accomplishments and adherence to the law of Moses. In other words, they could walk around and say, "Look what I did! Look how great I am!" I mean, I'm a lot better than that person. By the way, modern Christians, believers of today, don't we do the same thing? We pull into church and say, Well, I came back on Sunday night. Those other heathen Christians didn't. We'll just pray more for them. Wednesday night, well, I'm here. I don't know why they're not here. Again, we can see the principles as they come to our lives. Oh, yes, we're not going back to practice the Old Testament law. But they rested in their flesh. This is what I can do. This is who I am. By the way, that's why when Jesus confronts Martha and Mary, he doesn't necessarily work isn't important. He simply says worship is more important than work. Because a lot of times as Christians, we want to hang our hat on how much we've done and how much we've accomplished for Jesus. And God says, no, just hang your hat on being with me. Being close to me. Their flesh was manifest, and that was a problem. But why was their flesh manifest? The answer is because, letter B, their faith had been manipulated. When we begin to live in our flesh, our faith like that can be manipulated. And that's what was happening to them. This is why Paul is addressing it, beginning in verse 15. He's trying to bend them back to what is right, what is proper, how they ought to be living. The Galatians could have recoiled at Paul's physical condition when he was in their presence. Whatever that condition was exactly, it was a repugnant sight to the eye, he said. Enough to cause a physical response of a cringe or a gasp or staring from others. May we never see physical ailments or Maladies or troubles as a reason to recoil May they be opportunities to extend more grace and more love More opportunity to show the love of Christ through ourselves These Galatians did not let his physical handicap Keep them from learning and listening to the truth of the gospel That he preached So we find that as a people in verses 15 and 16 They were dedicated They had faith You have to have an act of faith to be able to be manipulated Don't you? Lazy, inactive people might be manipulated, but they first have to be motivated before they can be manipulated. These people were active and motivated. They were certainly zealous. He uses that word. They had a zeal to serve God. The issue was that the rules, the regulations, and the rituals and rites found in Judaism were beginning to twist how they perceived each other. And even the once beloved messenger of God, Paul himself. they perceived him. So Paul tells them, secondly, I put in your notes there that they must be discerning. They have to be discerning. Verses 17 and 18 are important when we understand them in their fullness. Zeal and desire aren't the keys for faithful people. Pastor, I really feel passionate that we should do this. Your zeal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do secret. My zeal doesn't even make it the right thing to do. I'm glad for our deacons and leaders in this church. We don't have a lot of yes-men. Now that means sometimes our meetings go a little bit longer, but the point is, if there was just a bunch of yes-men, then Kyle would be making all the decisions around here and we wouldn't be a congregational church at all. We understand then that the Christian life must be a discerning life. He said they zealously affect you, but not well, Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. He says, hey, look, they understand zeal isn't everything. They're zealous to change you, but they don't want to see the love and the zeal and the desire that you have. So zeal and desire aren't the keys for faithful people. Rather, what Paul is saying here is discernment and discretion are. Those are the keys to success. Do you want to know when you're mature? When you can decide between not good and evil, but when you can decide decide between better and best that's what paul's talking about he said but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing the word good there is the word beneficial thing that's what paul wants us to be discerning in their faith had been manipulated by the way <clears throat> It's easy sometimes in the books that we read or in the messages that we hear or the sermons that we listen to online. It's easy for us to say, well, they're saying something just slightly different than pastor. Maybe pastor isn't right. Now, there's a possibility I'm not right. But if I'm not right, you need to prove it to me from this book. Not what what Joe Schmo says on a YouTube channel. Not what Pastor Pete says down at the local church that's bigger than ours. I don't care about that. I care about this book and this book only. By the way, you should too. And so we find a third aspect beginning in verse 19. The role of adoption, the regression, and the arrogance. Paul then settles the matter as sons by using a revealing allegory. Paul has moved in verses 19 and 20 from confidence in their faith, confidence in them as a church, to concern. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He said, look, I will literally go through the birth pains again and again and again. And every woman that's had a child says, ugh, I don't want to do that over and over and over and over again. By the way, if you're pregnant or soon to be pregnant, do not let that terrify you. Go and talk to some lady and let them terrify you. Verse number 20. I desire to be present with you now. And notice what he says in verse 20. And to change my voice. Now, when I was a kid, I was ornery. You know, I used to think the Apostle Paul would talk like this or something. No, he's talking like that. That's not what he's saying, all right? It's not like he came in and was doing a mask or undercover boss kind of thing, right, with a different voice. What he's saying is, before I was very confident when I talked to you as to what we were going to do or what God had for you. Now, when I talk to you, I've got to change the way I talk to you. I've got to change my approach altogether. This is not comfortable for me. They cannot lose their relationship. But Paul understands these believers are desperately close to losing their fellowship with God if they follow these temporal, man-made rule. This passage to the newer believer is confusing, yet to the reader of Scripture, we know the story that follows beginning in verse number 21. We find letter A, the revealing allegory, is of Abraham's home, and we find the struggle is in the context. What he's trying to say to the Galatians is, there is a story you know so well. I'm going to summarize the story instead of read all of it this evening. It's simply this. It's a story of Abraham's home. Abraham's home and the story of it begins in Genesis chapter 13. And this particular part of the story, down through verse number 27, concludes in Genesis 21. The story is of Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the son of the bondwoman, the flesh. Isaac is the son of promise, that is, of the spirit, or new life in Jesus Christ. The story would be well known to the Jews of Galatia in the church and certainly to those who are trying to pull Jews away. Paul is no longer necessarily addressing the church. In this passage, he's going right to the throat. He's going right to the jugular of the Judaizers themselves. Hey, listen, I'm winning this argument. Which one are you? A child of the bondwoman or a child of the promise? The answer is a child of the promise, if you really wanted to be a true heir of Abraham. Sarah and Abraham tried to circumvent God's promise by providing their own heir. That's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to preach in this church. You can bring yourself to the point of salvation. No, you can't. No, you can't. The law cannot save anyone. No matter how many of them you keep. You can't keep it perfect. It's interesting, by the way. It, the Code of Hammurabi, which was the civil and societal norms of that day, says that what Abraham and Sarah concocted in their own way with Agar, as it's mentioned here, or Hagar, as it's written in the Hebrew in the book of Genesis, what they concocted with her was right civilly or right legally of that culture in that day. If you had a servant, a bondwoman in your house, and you were without an heir, and you wanted an heir, you could have that handmaid become your, the mother of a child to you. In other words, they weren't breaking even any civil laws in this, but they were breaking a divine promise. This is the struggle in context, and this is what Paul is trying to drive home to these sons of God. Listen, you do not, as an Isaac, want to become an Ishmael. You want to be an Isaac. Because it's good to be Isaac. You're the son of promise. You're the son of grace. You're the son of blessing. We find letter B in closing this evening, the success in the context. Beginning in verse number 28 through the end of chapter 4, we see not merely the struggle in the context of Hagar and Sarah, the bondwoman and the free woman, uh, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, and all of that is mentioned in those passages, and the context of it. But we see how we win in the actual contest. Where is success come in? How do we get victory? Verse 28. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Now, get what he's doing here. He's not saying this to the Jews, saying, yes, you were the children of Isaac. He's saying to the believers whole in the church, you believers are the children of promise. You need to understand that. Don't go back to the old way of living if you are a son of God, don't go back and become a son of Adam. Yeah. Or even for that matter, a son of, son of Abraham. Or for that matter, a son of Moses. Be a son of God. Amen. You're a child of promise. There's nothing new, by the way, about the contest. And success has always been the same way. Look in verse 29. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit... Even so it is now. Paul says, these Judaizers, there's nothing new that they're trying. They're doing the same old thing. They're just like Ishmael, pointing and laughing at Isaac. If you go back and read the story in Genesis chapter 21. It is then that Sarah says to Abram, get rid of him. I don't want him around. By the way... Edward a couple weeks ago in his allegories message, preached a wonderful message, and as an aside, that's why I love preaching, because you can preach free stuff, and sometimes that might be better than the message. Yeah, it, it wasn't. His message was good. The point is, that is what we have in the war of the flesh. The message was in, in the context of Amalek. The war that goes on in our flesh, the Ishmael of our flesh still stands mocking the Isaac of our spiritual man. And the only way you deal with it is how verse number thirty. Nevertheless, what sayeth the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. There is nothing that your law, the law or your flesh manifested in the law can do to help you. It's got to go, or you will never have true liberty. You will have you will have constant confusion and defeat. Cast. Out the bondwoman and her son. The law, friends, for us in principle today, only fed their flesh. And so what Paul is saying to us, there's no good in your flesh. Nothing about Christian liberty feeds our flesh. And as a son of God, you must live as a son of God principally. Paul's conclusion is that we are not children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free, in verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Live in the spirit, not in the flesh. Live in grace, not by the law. That's what chapter 4 is about. In closing, then, principled liberty consists of two elements. The reality that the seed of faith is necessary. No one gets saved without faith. God's grace doesn't just pop in your head and you become a Christian. I must put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone and the grace that he provides. And when I do that, that seed of faith brings me into a new life of liberty that I can live, not in bondage to sin anymore. I am free to choose to do what is right. That's the principle of a seed of faith. The second principle is that in that seed you are now a son. And not just the son of any old person. You are the son of God. And it's high time, Paul is arguing, that we start acting like something. That's why he's going to give us chapters 5 and most of chapter 6 talking about the practical. If you come back next week, you'll see the practical liberty on display. It's really found in three words. In fact, I encourage you this week as you read on it, read this. Stand, walk, and bear. You will find those three words in chapters 5 and 6. And they are the keys. I've already given you the main points next week. Some of you are like, wait, I don't have to come. (laughs) You probably want to come. I think you'll enjoy it. Stand, walk, and bear. Your liberty, friend, comes through faith in the fact that you and I have become the sons of God. That is what we build our lives upon. Those are the principal foundations of our liberty. Through faith, we have entered into his family need to begin to act. Father, help us as we